Thank you all for coming. I am delighted that you are here. I stand before you in two capacities today. First, as a dean celebrating the achievements of a faculty member, Ted White. And like the chair lecture that we recently had for River Kirky, I think a book panel is another moment where we get to celebrate what we all do so often on our own and to speak publicly and, uh, and, and heap praise upon those who toil in the trenches for long periods by themselves. And there aren't that many opportunities to do that, but we are taking them where we see them. So we are here to celebrate that endeavor uh, in general and Ted in particular. And we've invited some eminent legal historians from both our community and across the country to engage with TED today, and I'll introduce them in a moment. But the second capacity in which I stand here today is as a legal historian myself and a longtime beneficiary of the learning and wisdom of everyone on this panel. Ted White has been a bedrock of the University of Virginia's legal history program for almost 45 years. He arrived in 1972. Ted, I don't know if you've done the math recently, if that comes as a surprise, but uh, that's a long time. Try not to do <laughs> uh, And many of you are familiar with Ted's astounding productivity and the awards, accolades, and prominence that have attained it. This is his 17th book, in addition to many law review articles and other shorter works. They range in subject matter from Alger Hiss to baseball, from Chief Justice John Marshall to the American West, from tort law to jurisprudence. Ted is a member of both the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Law Institute, and he is a recipient of too many awards to name, but I'll just name a few. The Order of the Coif Book Award, the James Willard Hurst Award, the Choice Award for Outstanding Academic Book, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and our own Roger and Madeline Trainer Award for Scholarship. The book that we celebrate today is the second volume of Ted's ambitious and sweeping Law in American History from Reconstruction through the 1920s by Oxford University Press. The title is Purposeful, Law in American History. Ted connects the evolution of American law to the major political, economic, cultural, social, and demographic developments of the era. He also draws on economic history, anthropology, and sociology in doing so, and he makes the case for why law can be seen as key to understanding the development of American life as we know it. Obviously, we will hear more about that book momentarily. What might be not less visible to you, but has been clear to me since I arrived almost 15 years ago, is that even as Ted has been so prolific, he has also been an incredibly generous scholar and an incredibly generous senior legal historian scholar in particular. He comments on manuscripts. He strategizes about the shape of book projects. And so I make this introduction not only with celebration in mind, but also with gratitude. Indeed, in many ways, this panel is a celebration of the larger legal history community that has flourished for many years at UVA. Chuck McCurdy, at the end, arrived at UVA just three years after Ted did. I won't do the math again. And the two together have long defined what has been dubbed the Virginia School of Legal History. As a young scholar, Chuck wrote path-breaking articles on Supreme Court Justice Stephen J. Field, on the Lochner era, on the liberty of contract, and on the history of corporations and constitutional law. He's also the author of the prize-winning The Anti-Rent Era in New York Law and Politics, 1839 to 1865, which also won the Order of the Coif Award. And I will say the dinner that we went celebrating uh, Chuck's uh, winning of the Order of the Coif was when I felt I had been initiated into the brotherhood of legal historians here at Virginia. Uh, maybe integrated it, too. Um, 
Uh, he also is uh, a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and the winner as well of an All-University Distinguished Teaching Award here at UVA. Chuck's legacy for legal history at the university extends far beyond his scholarship and awards. He's a dedicated mentor to both students and faculty, again, very much including myself. And for more than three decades, he led the joint JDMA in history program, which is nationally unique and one of the most successful joint degree programs that we offer here in terms of consistently attracting students and Chuck's shepherding them through with incredible wisdom and humanity. It is a point of enormous pride for Chuck and the institution that over the course of his career, he has advised more than 200 undergraduate theses, JDMA theses, and PhD dissertations. Um, in honor of Chuck's retirement last year, some of you may have uh, attended the symposium that we had for him and know about the creation of the Charles W. McCurdy Legal History Fellowship, which we created in conjunction with the Miller Center, to bring young legal historians to UVA in order to join our vibrant community for a year and to benefit from it. And Anand Deborah, who's here today, is the second uh, Charles W. McCurdy Fellow. Speaking of Chuck students, brings me to our third panelist. Sitting next to Chuck is Logan Sawyer. After completing his undergraduate work at UNC, Logan completed our JDMA program and then went on to receive a PhD in history from UVA as well under the tutelage of Ted White, Chuck McCurdy, and others. And he clerked for the North Carolina Supreme Court and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals after graduating. Uh, since then, he has been teaching at the University of Georgia. He received tenure in 2014, and he's currently visiting at Harvard Law School. His scholarship is on child labor and child labor law in the early 20th century, as well as federalism and originalism, and we're delighted to have him back at the law school for this panel. We all know that a scholarly community extends far beyond the bounds of a single university, and so I'm happy to say that our final member of the panel is neither a Virginian, uh, <laughs> nor was ever a Virginian, but is an integral part of the national legal history community that helps make ours possible and help makes ours flourish, and that's Barbara Welke from the University of Minnesota, where she is the distinguished McKnight University professor, a professor of history and a professor of law, and the co-director of their program in legal history. She teaches and writes in the areas of 19th and 20th century U.S. history and U.S. legal and constitutional history. She has also won multiple awards for her teaching and her scholarship, including the Horace T. Morris University of Minnesota Alumni Association Award for Teaching. She's the author of two books. The first book, Recasting American Liberty, Gender, Race, Law, and the Railroad Revolution, 1865 to 1920, won the American Historical Association's Littleton Griswold Prize. Uh, many years ago, when I was new to Virginia. We held a book panel on that book, and it was one of my very first public speaking engagements at the law school, so I remember it well. And her second book is Law and the Borders of Belonging in the Long 19th Century United States. To continue on the theme of mentorship, Barbara has mentored dozens of young legal historians. I don't know how young I am, but I would say informally, I have been a mentor, a mentee of Barbara's. More formally, she is the perennial and tireless chair of the preeminent Hearst Summer Institute in Legal History at the University of Wisconsin, where she has shaped the future of legal history uh, here and elsewhere for many years. And indeed, our own Cynthia Nicoletti was an attendee at the Hearst Institute. Before I close, I want to thank Cynthia, who has worked hard behind the scenes to make today happen, as well as Terry Johnson and everyone else who put this event together. And now for what you've been waiting for, the panel on law in American history. Thank you.
And by the way, I'm just serving as a kind of moderator. No, it's all right, it's all right. Uh, moderator here, uh, I have no substantive role, but uh, we're gonna, so I'm just gonna sort of guide us through. Uh, we're gonna begin with uh, a, a discussion by Logan Sawyer, and then we're gonna have comments by the, the full panel. Oh no, I didn't mean to. Until we walked in the room, I was under the misimpression that I was moderating. Charles Barzen is a member of our faculty, a graduate of the JDMA program, as well as an undergraduate graduate of Harvard Law School, and is now running the JDMA in history program, and is a wonderful member of our legal history community. Apologies. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Okay, go for it, Logan. Okay, so um, I was asked just to start by uh, giving a brief uh, summary of the book, but I just want to start by saying thanks for the opportunity uh, to Risa for being here, to Cynthia for organizing this and inviting me, uh, for Charles uh, for, uh, 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 for moderating, and um, I'm always happy to come back to Virginia. Um, uh, it's my home uh, and intellectual home in many ways. And, to talk about what is, uh, I think, both an important and a truly remarkable uh, book. I mean, one of the questions I want to kind of would like Ted to talk to now or at some point is whether or not one builds a career uh, that makes one capable of writing such a book, right? Whether one plans this. Because here's the thing if you haven't read the book, this book covers 1870 to 1920, and here are some of the topics that it covers, the uh, uh, drafting and interpretation of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the, building, the law of the building of the American Railroad, relationship uh, with American Indians, uh, tort law, contract law, criminal law, uh, commercial law, uh, the development of legal education over time, uh, the work of the Supreme Court and how they got their work done, in addition, uh, freedom of contract, uh, antitrust, federalism, uh, 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 and uh, free speech, and uh, the law of race relations, right? So that's all of that. And uh, if I have any complaints about being here at all, it's been that I've been asked to summarize that book, which does all of that, <laughs> intervening in each of those topics, as well as put it into a larger narrative history uh, in 10 minutes or less. So Charles, maybe if I could have a little, uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking, like, like two hours, <laughs> and I could get it done. I'll give you like the 60,000 foot uh, overview um, and uh, that starts where, where Risa did. Uh, this is a book, Law in American History. This is not just a history of American law. This book is a story about the relationship of American law uh, to the kind of cultural, social, intellectual, economic history of America during this time period. Um, it's also emphatically a history. This is not a, uh, a kind of political science story where we can put this relationship into a kind of mathematical formula. Uh, it's also a history in that it is path dependent, right? What happened yesterday depended on what happened the day before. It's a story, right? And it's a story, it's a history because it's a story with contingency. As Ted reminds us throughout the book, there are different organizations, different approaches that could have occurred. And so his story takes us through this. And last of all, it's a history because it's a narrative, right? Uh, and it's to that narrative uh, uh, that I want to turn because I think that narrative is based on a reperiodization uh, of American legal history. And I think that that's, I'll talk more about this in my comments, but I think that's one of its real uh, contributions. So let me turn there. Um, if it's true that all, uh, all uh, plots are uh, of two varieties, a stranger comes to town or a hero goes on a journey, uh, this is a hero that goes on a journey. This is a history of American law. 
kind of has a dance party uh, uh, with American history, but the, sh the spotlight stays on uh, law as it develops from the 1870s until uh, the 1920s. Uh, and when the curtain opens, we've already had Act One with the previous book, but when the curtain opens, law is pre-modern, right? Law has grown up in a pre-modern society. Law itself has certain pre-modern characteristics which I'll talk about in a minute. And then by the end of this story, uh, uh, American society, American culture, American intellectual history has become more modern, but not fully modern. And law has traveled along with it. And so the story of this, this book, Act Two, is the story of law's uh, journey. So I want to just uh, give a quick uh, overview of what exactly that means. What is pre-modern and where is the law headed? Uh, to its full modernity in uh, the second book. Um, so this is a very brief uh, kind of summary, but uh, economically, um, America in the 1870s was primarily pre-modern in that it was a face-to-face -face, uh, economic system, uh, largely agricultural and small shopkeepers. Um, society was pre-modern, meaning it was primarily hierarchical, Right? and much more status conscious. We can think the relations, uh, the relationships between uh, master and slave, which is just ended, master-servant, uh, and intensely patriarchal uh, family life. Uh, intellectually, America was also uh, pre-modern. And here, uh, Ted uh, argues that Americans in this time were pre-modern because they did not see uh, human agency as the central causal force in causing change over time, right? Instead, uh, what uh, drove American society was uh, iron laws, uh, pre-existing laws that were beyond human control, right? Uh, morality uh, handed down um, from, uh, from God, uh, the economy, uh, based on those kinds of uh, moral uh, ideas that was also kind of had uh, rhythms beyond, beyond full uh, human control. And ultimately, and I think this is uh, one of the important uh, claims that he makes, is that the law was like that too. Judges saw the law as something that they were discovering uh, rather uh, than making. And what they had in mind, that law that they discovered had certain principles, um, federalism, uh, 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 separation of powers, and an approach to, to judicial review that wasn't based on, as we think of uh, 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 um, judicial review today, as based on uh, the institutional competence that judges have, right? They make policy just like legislators, but they operate in a different institutional context, and as a result, they're uh, authorized to use judicial review to make policy in those contexts, is not the approach judges took here. Uh, judges saw certain political questions that were outside of their realm, and then certain legal questions that judges as savants, right, could identify and apply to problems uh, before them. By the time we get to the end of this period, uh, much of this has changed. The economy is modern. It is with railroads and telegraphs. Um, we have uh, companies of uh, national scope. Many commercial transactions are not done face-to-face, -face, but through contracts, uh, long distance. Society has become more urban and less hierarchical. Um, there is no slavery. Uh, employer and employee has replaced uh, master-servant. Uh, the uh, 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 coverture has disappeared. Women have, uh, through Married Women's Property Act and Married Women's uh, Earnings Act, have uh, contract uh, and uh, property rights. Uh, and in addition, there is a change going on in the way human beings understand their relationship 
to change over time. People are beginning, though they are not all the way there, but beginning to see man as the central force in causing uh, change over time. That is true uh, uh, both in uh, the economy, in morality, and uh, in law. So that's the journey. Law has to take these old understandings and uh, deal with these new problems as the economy changes, as society is changing, as ideas are changing, and it both responds to and shapes uh, these uh, different, uh, uh, these different uh, changes. Where we're left at the end is a little bit of a cliffhanger, right? I think at the end we are left with the law in an unstable state. American society and economy is not yet fully modern, and the Amer American law is not yet fully modern, but it is headed that way, and we all await the uh, uh, upcoming third volume to see how it is resolved. So, Charles, how much time have I got? About two minutes. Okay, so now that I've got an hour and 50 minutes left, I can give you several specific examples. This, this is where, like, you gotta go read the book because you gotta get into the details of this. This is, you know, this is such a, a quick overview, but just as one example, we can think about the uh, creation of civil rights during this period by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. In some ways, right, new and modern. What the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment did is they created a category of civil rights. They associated it with national citizenship, and they applied it, right, to both white and uh, African, white and black Americans. Right? This is new. This is modern. It uh, 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 nationalizes the. Uh, 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 law and its uh, 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 destroy or uh, lessens uh, certain hierarchies. But at the same time, the heavy hand of the pre-modern past influenced the way that these uh, rights came into uh, being. There was a vision of separation of powers and an understanding of what individual rights, what civil rights were, right, that limited the ability of people during this period to imagine a different change. Right. And so what we end up with, with civil rights understood uh, at the beginning of this period is something closer to contract and property rights, more like the, and less like the right to full participation in society that we have today, that ends up limiting the impact of the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments. And the same approach to federalism in writing uh, and interpreting the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments. Uh, uh, judges and policymakers had in the back of their head, dragging behind them, these kinds of uh, pre-modern understandings of federalism. There are dozens more examples, um, but I will stop now uh, and uh, so that we can hear from the rest of the panel. Great, thank you. Thank you, Logan. So we're gonna go uh, in order beginning with, with Chuck. Uh, each panelist will speak for uh, 15 minutes, and then uh, Ted will have a chance to respond to all of them uh, in 15 minutes. Well, I'm retired now, so I'm out of practice standing up before uh, a group. Uh, nevertheless, I'm happy to be here. <clears throat> I have three major observations, um, and then some illustrative detail for each um, of my observations. And whereas Logan flew at um, 30, 40,000 feet, um, I'm going to get down, uh, which is my, um, my thing, uh, down in the weeds. <clears throat> so the first point, first observation is this. <clears throat> Ted's been thinking about this book since before I first met him in January 1976. 
That's a long time ago, but he has been thinking about this book. And uh, that's what he looked like then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great photo. Um, uh, 13 months before I was hired at Virginia, uh, Ted wrote a long review of Lawrence Friedman's History of American Law in the Virginia, uh, Virginia Law Review. And uh, Friedman's book was an important one. It was the first attempt to write a general history uh, of American law. And guess what? Ted didn't much like it. <clears throat> Indeed, he said in his review first that the social science approach, the notion that law is merely a mirror of society and society makes demands and then law responds <clears throat> is, well, what did he say? He said it produced, quote, unrefined and simplistic generalizations about historical trends, <clears throat> end of quote. <clears throat> Higher order generalizations not only could be richer, he thought, but much more persuasive. Ted was a graduate of the American Studies PhD program at Yale. <clears throat> his, uh, his toolkit included things like paradox, ambiguity, contingency, uh, uh, symbol, myth, uh, irony. All of these are elements in the narrative strategies and in the interpretive strategies uh, that um, Ted has brought to bear in law and American history. <clears throat> Now, there was something else about Friedman's approach that really stuck in, in Ted's craw, and that is Friedman said, we're not going to do anything with constitutional law in this book. It's all going to be private law and some big statutes. You know, well, I'll talk about the Sherman Antitrust Act, but there's not going to be anything about Plessy and Ferguson uh, in this book. <clears throat> and um, uh, Ted said that this was like, and uh, this is a pretty close paraphrase, uh, this is like building a cathedral without a dome, <clears throat> because if you leave out what's going on in constitutional history, you lose the opportunity to integrate the cultural, intellectual, and social trends that fused American law, <clears throat> private, public, constitutional, at any one point in time. You will miss the opportunity uh, to discern and then to elaborate interconnections between, for example, uh, the world of torts uh, and, the, and the world of uh, Supreme Court hijinks. <clears throat> so Ted was ready to think about an altogether new history, general history of American law back in 1973. <clears throat> I suspect at that time he had no idea it was going to take three volumes, but he, he was uh, fat volumes, uh, but he, he, he was thinking about it. <clears throat> but I also believe that Ted understood in 1973, that the job was way too big for him, at least at that moment in time. <clears throat> there was so much to learn <clears throat> about so many things before he could try to tackle <clears throat> an, a, a history of American law or law in American history in the way he was inclined to approach it. And as we all know about Ted, <clears throat> the best way to learn about something for Ted has always been to write a book about it. <clears throat> and so, 10 or 15 books later, he was ready to make the plunge <clears throat> uh, and uh, begin to produce law in American history. <clears throat> so that's my first observation. My second is that law in American history is largely constructed in a found, on a foundation supplied uh, by tort law in America, 
the Marshall Court and Cultural Change, Oliver Wendell Holmes, in fact, the conclusion of this volume <clears throat> sort of recounts Holmes in 90 words or less and how his very career um, uh, embodied uh, the themes elaborated between his two covers. <clears throat> uh, the Constitution of the New Deal, even uh, Ted's history of baseball uh, in America is going to make a striking reprise <clears throat> in the chapter on contracts, more on that in a moment. <clears throat> So what, what we have here is a lifetime of learning by writing in this book. And you can see glimmers <coughs> of his <coughs> huge bibliography on each and every page. <coughs> that doesn't mean that he does what so many scholars do, that is, cut out old articles and paste them in, and, and there's my new book. Oh, no, no. It's matured. It's reflected. Uh, it's new. Um, but you can discern on every page the uh, learning by writing strategy that Ted, um, Ted took. <clears throat> One example will have to suffice. <clears throat> Chapter 5 focuses on the rise and decline of the Langdale Holmes uh, Williston general theory of contract. <clears throat> and as Ted lays that out, it's, uh, it's clear, it's distinct. He's really experienced in doing that because he wrote a chapter about contract in Holmes's lectures on the common law back in, uh, in, in the 1880s in the, in the Holmes book. And he knows where he has to get. He has to get to Wood versus uh, Lucy Lady Duff Gordon. You may remember that uh, chestnut from your uh, contract law uh, uh, courses. <coughs> uh, a Cardozo opinion from the early 1920s. <coughs> And the way Ted chose to do that was to focus on cases involving the output requirements or exclusivity clauses in bilateral agreements in turn-of-the-century America. And pretty soon he's really deep uh, in the, uh, into the weeds. <coughs> um, he's, um, he's got some very uh, complex doctrinal details to negotiate. <coughs> so how to bridge that gap and how to write a clear and wonderful narrative. The answer, of course, was the baseball book. <clears throat> the reserve clause in ball player contracts, which everybody can understa understand and appreciate, <clears throat> provides the case law <clears throat> that supplied the element that he needed to build an effective bridge between the world of Holmes and the world of Cardozo, between the world of objective and external uh, uh, standards, and the world of good faith and fair dealing. <clears throat> Writing about the reserve clause on pages 184 to 188, I think, <clears throat> must have given Ted enormous satisfaction and no doubt uh, some chuckles. <clears throat> uh, you know, the, uh, young people these days, on their phones, they have this, uh, uh, this thing, LOL, that they write in the, when they're <laughs> twittering back and forth. I, don't, I have a flip phone, so I can't do any of those things. But that's what I did. I LOL'd uh, <laughs> as I read, as I read. Uh, uh, that section of the contracts uh, uh, chapter. <clears throat> My third and final observation is the most significant one. Ted started thinking about this project in 73. He started writing roughly 40 years later. Still, he learned some really big new things as he began the process of organizing the material for the second volume. <clears throat> And he always has learned big new things in the course of writing. And my sense is that the, it's this very aspect of writing that he enjoys the most and that keeps him going at it. <clears throat> Ted loves seeing stuff in the historical record 
that nobody has seen in quite the same way before. <clears throat> now, there's, a, there's several big new things in law and American history, but my favorite one <clears throat> occurs in chapters 2, 3, 4. <clears throat> when I first looked at this book, I said, what's he going to do with trans, uh, transcontinental railroads and Indians? And why is that the next chapter? <clears throat> Maybe it's about Indian citizenship, <clears throat> since the first chapter was on the Reconstruction Amendments. And then why foreign relations right after that? And the third uh, chapter in the series is on the transformation of American immigration law and policy. <clears throat> now in the introduction, Ted suggests that each of these dimensions of law in American history, <clears throat> two of which he had never written about. <clears throat> and uh, when Ted hasn't written about something, <clears throat> he probably hasn't read about it either unless a colleague whose tenure review committee he's on, <laughs> has written something that he has to read for a, um, uh, for a promotion case. <clears throat> so two of those areas, inter, uh, Im immigration and, um, uh, and uh, uh, North American Indian law, <clears throat> he says in the introduction, touch on the expansion of the American national state and the growth of overseas contacts between Americans and the people of other nations. <clears throat> yeah, fair enough. They do. They do hang together in that way. <clears throat> what holds the three chapters together, however, <clears throat> was a single big new thing. <clears throat> Ted had written on foreign relations law and the advent of inherent powers theory at the turn of the century when he was working on the, uh, uh, on the New, Deal, uh, New Deal era. <clears throat> In fact, he reported in the Holmes book that Holmes and T.R. had a discussion about inherent powers theory <clears throat> um, after uh, Horace Gray died and Roosevelt was thinking of Roosevelt as a possible, I mean, of Holmes as a possible successor. <clears throat> and as Ted began to read about North American Indian law and he began to read about immigration law, he saw that they were connected with one another and with foreign relations law in stunning ways. <clears throat> and when Ted started to write about them, his sense of discovery, his excitement with this big uh, new thing was manifested uh, in his prose. <clears throat> so in the immigration, in the, uh, immigration law chapter, we get uh, Ted's account of Chen Shai Ping versus the United States, the Chinese uh, exclusion case of 1889, uh, uh, where a unanimous court speaking through Justice Field says it's no problem to exclude immigrants, even though there's a no enumerated power in Article I, Section 8, giving Congress the authority to regulate uh, admission to the country to, um, uh, to control its own borders. That's because there is an inherent power, <clears throat> an inherent power arising from the very nature of sovereignty that all the commentators on the law of nations realize that nations must perforce have control over their own borders. It would make no sense to allow the states or any one of them to fulfill this function, and therefore it must belong to the United States. And when Ted writes about that opinion, he says, we have seen that in the Lone Wolf case, Lone Wolf and Hitchcock, an Indian law case, the court concluded that because of the dependent relationship between tribes and the federal government, laws affecting the tribes were essentially insulated from judicial review. And it was not clear whether Field meant to extend that proposition to acts of departments of the federal government affecting foreign affairs. I don't think he did. But Chan, <laughs> Chan, 
The Chinese exclusion case involved an alien seeking entry to the United States rather than one being threatened with deportation, and as such arguably involved the exercise of a power at the very heart of the nation's sovereignty, that of deciding who should be permitted to come within its borders. <coughs> Indian law <coughs> and immigration law grounded on the same, same meta principle. <coughs> Earlier in the same chapter, we get the same sense of intellectual excitement <coughs> when he lays out what the chapter is going to look like. This chapter will suggest, he wrote, that the supplanting of previous tribal treaties by agreements administered through the Bureau of Indian Affairs was paralleled in American constitutional foreign relations jurisprudence by the supplanting of treaties between the United States and foreign powers by executive agreements between presidents and representatives of those powers. <clears throat> I've got another page. Where is it? There it is. So Ted had been thinking about this book for more than 40 years. Ted prepared for this performance by writing a great many other books. <clears throat> And through it all, Ted never lost the curiosity, drive, and sense of excitement with new insights that are so necessary to doing great scholarship greatly. <clears throat> You're the best, Ted. <clears throat> and we await the third volume as we celebrate the second with immense admiration. <clears throat> I'm obviously shorter. Tell me if that's a good spot. All right. Well, it is a really great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm not sure that uh, Ted White and I had ever actually gotten to meet before this occasion. But I've known and been learning from G. Edward White. It's a long time before I knew they were the same guy. Uh, G. Edward White for a long time. In the late 1980s, his tort law in America and intellectual history regrounded me in the law of negligence as I was at that point many years from my first year law, law school course in torts. And I was embarked on a dissertation in which tort law was central to two legs of the three-legged stool that I was constructing. And then well over a decade later, I returned to tort law in America as I embarked on what I thought would become my second book, A Socio-Legal History of Product Liability. As it has turned out, other books have intervened, and so I expect to return to tort law in America a third time for a refresher at some point in the future, and it's an amazing book, and so I was really excited to read this one. Um, you might say that White has been uh, a teacher for me um, from the beginning of my career, and I think that's true for many of us in the field of legal history. I'll also say that now having tried to write my own, uh, write a survey, sort, survey of sorts of my own, albeit a much shorter and more modest in scope, stressed, stretched across the long 19th century, uh, but nonetheless which travels some of the same ground that White travels here. I'm here to express my appreciation for volume two of Ted White's Law in American History. Because having tried to do this task of survey writing, I appreciate at least in some little way the magnitude of the task that he has embarked on 
in this massive, ambitious trilogy of the history of American law. I can also say that uh, having written one survey, I'm cured of ever attempting uh, to write another. So my hat goes off to him in staying the course because I think we need that third volume as much and maybe even more than the first two. At 634 pages, and you see, you know, this is, this is a chunk of a book, right? Uh, and I think it's important that you include the notes when you think about the length of a book. Uh, even though they're in notes, not footnotes, uh, for those of us who write history, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into those notes. And, and, uh, and there's a lot of substance in his notes. So I would encourage you to keep, you know, two markers um, and be able to go to them. But this one volume of, of White's trilogy dwarfs Lawrence Friedman's, and I didn't know that you'd written a review of uh, History of American Law, originally published in 1985, and also Kermit Hall's The Magic Mirror, uh, Law in American History, which actually uses the mirror metaphor um, from 1989. They were both books that I read as a young legal historian and that I even occasionally go back to now. And hold your ears, Ted that I, I still think there's much in them uh, to recommend them uh, for reading. There are other survey-like um, books, so Lawrence Friedman and Harry Scheiber's American Law and Constitutional Order from 1978, a book that even in the last year I've, I've gone back to, Friedman's American Law in the 20th Century, and then more recently the three-volume Cambridge History of Law in America published in 2008 edited by Michael Grossberg and Christopher Tomlins. And there you have 60, over 60 essays ranging from the colonial era to the present, so that by definition, they don't speak with uh, one, one voice. And White very pr productively draws on several of those es essays in this volume, um, including Norma Bash's essay on domestic relations, Elizabeth Dale's on criminal law and justice, and Laura Edwards on the Civil War and Reconstruction. So with these other surveys of law and American history, um, what does Ted White have to add? And I would say much, it turns out. Uh, and I didn't understand that there was a, maybe an ax to grind in there too, but, uh, but, but much. And more than any of these other histories or legal historians, Ted White is a historian of law. Uh, although not a history of doctrine per se, White centers doctrinal development in tracing the history of public law, the common law, and key areas of constitutional law in the volume. He returns us to what Robert Gordon has described as Mandarin texts, their authors, and their world, and reminds us of their importance. We need social histories of law. We also need histories of law by legal scholars with a deep and broad knowledge of appellate and constitutional jurisprudence who have a commitment to writing for a general audience. Law is a tough slog for the uninformed. So that while things that are otherwise inaccessible or too easily misunderstood, discounted or missed altogether, actually become part of the narrative of American history. And that's what volume two does for us. So I spend an appreciative week reading volume two, and that's, you know, a teensy period of time compared to the labor that went into researching and writing the volume, but a serious commitment from a reader nonetheless. It took me along paths that I thought I knew and pushed me to think about them differently. Chapter one on civil rights in the Reconstruction era belongs in this category. 
where he pushes the reader and pushed me to appreciate, in a way I didn't, uh, the achievement of the recognition of civil rights, as does chapter 11 on the Supreme Court's antitrust and economic police power cases. It opened, the book is a whole open words, worlds for me that were more unfamiliar to me and possibly to others than they should be. Uh, chapter nine on the emergence of, a modern, of modern American legal education uh, was in this, uh, this category and I found especially delightful to read, so I urge you to read that closely. It took me into the world of Supreme Court justices. Legal formalism comes alive here in a way that I, I to make me understand it differently, um, as do the practices of the court. White explains what he means by guardian review in chapter 10, its basis in a deeply held belief, you might even say a first principle of judging, that law was out there to be found, the comfort that judges could take in the belief that they didn't make law, they found it. They might, in this, in this respect, make errors, but eventually the true law would reveal itself. It's hard to wrap our heads around this way of thinking today, and White insists that we do so. More than any other individual chapter, chapter 10 or so it seems to me, is where we get to the heart of White's understanding of the decades from Reconstruction to the 1920s as an intermediate state between a pre-modern cultural ethos and a modern one. And this makes a careful reading of that chapter, I think, of special importance. But the part of the chapter that most grabbed me was being taken into the Supreme Court's pre procedures, and you might say etiquette the assignment of opinions, when exactly it was that other justices saw the written opinion, as it turns out, often not, in, generally not until it was published. That's a different world, right? Uh, when the names of the justices joining an opinion were first actually listed, and so on. We see form and process deeply implicating the substance of the law itself. For historians especially, I think this chapter is essential reading. Moreover, it provides the foundation for White's rereading in the chapters that follow of the Supreme Court's decisions in antitrust and economic police power, race relations, and free speech cases. White's insistence that we think about law as simultaneously produced in a given historical moment or era and as driven or shaped by internal structures and val values runs through the volume. His belief that understanding law in this moment, the moment he's writing about here, or any moment, requires looking through the eyes of the lawmakers, taking seriously their worldview, the institutional constraints, processes, and values under which they decided the cases before them, and what they thought they were doing in deciding those cases, is not just a healthy reminder, but especially important in this contentious era in which law fell to many viewers who have looked at it in retrospect and to millions at the time, black Americans, women, Native Americans, immigrants, persons with disabilities, industrial workers, so painfully short of what might have been. What belongs in an introduction and what in the conclusion to a book is often a struggle. For readers approaching this volume fresh, I'd encourage you to begin with the end You've already heard about chapter 14, Toward Modernity. But that's where I urge you to start, in which White 
beautifully retraces the arc of the volume's history through the life and work of Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. I'm not sure it will fully make sense to you as a starting point, but I think reading it first and then again at the end will help you see more clearly the arc of the book and its overarching argument, and also to enter into the world of Holmes, and also then the world as White sees it, that these men were traveling through. One of the great challenges of working in the field of American history is the overwhelming tide of books. Many years ago, as I struggled to complete my first monograph, I told Chris Tomlins that I found myself overwhelmed with new books that I needed to read and consider. His advice, forget about the other damn books. Write your own book. So any author who ventures beyond a narrow field must to some degree embrace this advice. And this is especially true of a survey of the scope here. Throughout the volume, White draws on, incorporates, and responds to outstanding historical work, including, for example, in chapter one, as I've already mentioned, Laura Edwards' new legal history of the Civil War and Reconstruction. In the chapter on torts, John Witt's The Accidental Republic. And to offer a third example, in the chapter on immigration, Gerald Newman's Strangers to the Constitution and Aristide Zolberg's A Nation by Design. But White's choice, or so it seems to me, was to privilege what Robert Gordon described as materials within the law box. And so many outstanding histories remain outside the ambit of his analysis. The task of writing a scope of this, a survey of this scope and, and scale by definition requires making choices. But there are consequences to these missing histories. In describing his methodological approach in the introduction, White notes that his focus is on central themes of American history as they were understood by contemporaries. The field of contemporaries is narrowed by these histories' absence. The vision of lawmakers constrained to the bench, bar, and legal scholars, white, male, and shielded from the crushing burden of the industrial workplace. The powerful case that historians have made of Americans in this era, including legislators and judges' commitment to white supremacy and the tangible benefits that white supremacy offered to white Americans across the United States, makes it more difficult to accept the celebration, and celebration, I'll come back to that, of civil rights that white offers in chapter one. You might say the accomplishment of, of civil rights. Um, the sickening history that numerous scholars have traced of lynchings made me shrink away when I read the sentences in chapter 8 on the criminal law that part of the reason for extra-legal punishment mechanisms was the relatively low rate of conviction, or that lynch mobs typically responded to concerns that an African-American suspect would not be brought to trial quickly enough or might receive a lighter sentence than death. Or to offer another example, incorporating a richer range of historical work would have made it more difficult, to my mind, to leave open the question of whether immigration restriction should be treated as as dark a chapter in American history as the treatment of Native Americans or black Americans, or even to see the three as distinct rather than as elements in a larger pattern of shoring up the borders of belonging. I found the closing paragraph of chapter four haunting. In that paragraph, White writes, as late as the 1940s, it was still possible for a large segment of the American public to believe that if we chose not to mingle with foreigners whose presence seemed threatening, we need not. 
now with these assumptions forever discarded. Have they been discarded? Advocates for a constitutional amendment eliminating birthright citizenship don't occupy just the margins. I think it's an open question whether the amendment, 14th Amendment could be ratified today. The current election with calls from Trump and his supporters to build the wall to block all Muslims from entering the country, the characterization of Mexican immigrants as rapists and murderers suggests to me that we are not as far from the 1940s as we might wish to believe. I wonder if the organization of the volume as a whole, the division of chapters by doctrinal fields, the limited attention to the growth of the administrative state, the sandwiching of private law and criminal law between the two public law segments of the book makes it easier to characterize the ugliness of the law related to Native Americans, African Americans, large categories of immigrants as a legacy of the past rather than as, the modern, as modern forward-looking, relying on new legal forms and as the law that would shape American life through much of the 20th century. I'm going to skip. I want to be clear that White does not ignore the ugliness in this era. He acknowledges the gap that often existed between legal scholars' neat ordering of the law and the messiness of law in fact. Nor is he a cheerleader of what he describes as guardian review. My copy of Volume 2 of American History is filled with underlining and marginal notes. The 20 pages of jotting that I made, I made as I read are filled with appreciative comments. And some of those appreciative comments are going to have to go here because I'm over time. Um, but I want to close with this. I'm not finished reading Volume 2 of Ted White's trilogy. And I don't mean in saying that that I didn't finish reading the book. I did. Um, <laughs> what I mean is that we come back to books like this. I argued with this book as I read it. I fought with this book. I found myself joining him. I found myself learning from him. And I found myself asking questions that he had provoked me to ask that I'd never thought of before. What happens when we come back to books like this is that we find things that we missed the first time or have since forgotten. We read back through a new present. And by virtue of other historical works, we read back through a new past. And so the work is made anew for us. And so just as I have read Tort Law in America again and again, I look forward to reading this book again and again and know I will find it new. Thank you. Good to see you all again. Uh, so uh, uh, when, I, uh, when I was invited to come and give this talk, I was actually in the midst of writing a, a historiographical essay uh, for publication and in, uh, in which uh, all of the other panelists played key uh, roles. And I kind of thought to myself, what on earth am I doing on this panel? Um, and then the thought that came to me was the point that uh, Risa made, you know, I'm I'm a product of uh, what I think of, and uh, I think uh, many of us do, is the Virginia School of Legal History. And so I thought what I'd do with my comments is uh, try to explain what I see this book doing uh, uh, to or with uh, the Virginia School of Legal History that Ted uh, played a central role in creating and sustaining. And uh, I want to comment, I want to uh, direct my comments towards, towards kind of one part of that uh, 
tradition, the, the Virginia school tradition. And that's the idea that's been touched on before that I think in the Virginia uh, uh, tradition of legal history, uh, legal doctrine matters. Legal doctrine is not just camouflage uh, for policy choices. Um, it is, um, uh, it uh, uh, has an impact uh, on judges and on society and on legal change and thus uh, on social change. I'd say the Virginia School is kind of aimed at rejecting what I think of as kind of vulgar legal realism, which sees the law as just uh, a cover for that. And as a result, law is not just doctrine by any means. You can see that by just on the first page uh, of uh, this book. Um, uh, but it uh, includes that history. Law is intellectual history as well as social history. It's a concern with doctrine as well as a concern with clashing uh, interest groups uh, fighting over what the law should be. And that's how I see, you know, that's how I, this book uh, it pushes that, both uh, uh, summarizes, synthesizes, and expands that perspective in important ways. Uh, that's why I see a lot of Chuck's uh, work doing. That's why I see Risa doing with a lot of her work. I see Cynthia doing that with a lot of her work. These, these are assumptions uh, uh, kind of baked into the Virginia uh, School of Legal History. But just to be clear, I also see Barbara doing a lot of this, having never been to Virginia before. Or at least I hope she's doing that, because that's what I said in my historiographical essay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, there's also people who taught here at Virginia who probably don't follow this Virginia approach to legal history. So uh, you know, just with those aside, what I wanted to focus on as a way of clarifying my uh, remarks is the way that Ted lays out uh, Guardian Review. Right? Uh, this is the approach to constitutional interpretation he characterizes as, uh, he, uh, as, as uh, uh, governing the way the Supreme Court uh, approached uh, freedom of contract, antitrust, uh, uh, race relations cases, uh, and also free speech cases during this time. And if you go to three, 300, page 382, that's the place where Ted, I think, makes uh, the argument that I'm saying here, that this uh, uh, is that freedom of contract is not just about conflict between laborers and capitalists. It's not just about advancing different economic interests. It's also uh, about ideas. It's also about doctrine. And I want to talk about a couple of ways that I think uh, Ted's work uh, establishes this idea that doctrine uh, matters. Um, and what I want to ultimately emphasize is at least what's new to, newest uh, to me, and I think it's, I want to emphasize as a result of that, is this uh, idea of pre-modernism and the role it plays in supporting that claim of the Virginia School. Uh, okay, so how does Ted support the idea that uh, legal doctrine matters? Uh, one thing he does again and again is, take, uh, is line up cases that many other people have said are doctrinally incoherent and argue that they are not doctrinally incoherent. Right? That there are a way that these cases can be lined up that at least makes sense to someone. I'll come back to that someone is in a minute because that's an important part of the question. So we see like Lochner and Holder versus Hardy or Lochner uh, and Jacobs uh, versus Massachusetts are not incoherent cases. They are both, they are two cases on opposite sides of a boundary that judges are trying uh, to prick out between the legitimate exercise of government power uh, to solve problems and uh, illegitimate attempts to pass a partial uh, legislation that interferes with people's moral right to use their property um, uh, as they uh, see fit. Right? 
So one of the things that Ted notices and understands is that that kind of doctrinal structure might not make a lot of sense to us, people who don't share the moral universe that the judges uh, at the time did. And so he helps us reconstruct that. And so that's another way that he does this. He doesn't just say the cases can line up this way. He says they lined up this way, and then he gives us a way of understanding how a person could think that lining up the cases that way would be a reasonable interpretation of something like, uh, for example, uh, the due uh, process clause. Right? So in this case, it's the argument, at least to put it uh, very broadly, uh, that these judges took seriously the fact that the economy ought to be based on uh, bedrock, unchangeable moral assumptions that give to people a moral right to use their property in the way that they want and a moral right to pursue uh, whatever, uh, uh, whatever profession that they believed was right for them without interference. Unless, right? Unless there were circumstances in which those market forces uh, moved forward too quickly, too fast, uh, uh, damaged the health or public welfare, um, or created monopolies that would undermine uh, this free market that they believed um, not just uh, allowed this moral freedom, but also produced good results. And so what he says is these judges made this line, this, this police power on one side effective, uh, acceptable regulation, uh, and uh, this uh, zone of liberty on the other, made sense to them because they understood the world to operate in that way, right? And what Ted does in this book more than I think than I've seen anywhere else is one of the things that he does is he shows this operating in one doctrinal area and then another and then another and then another. It's one thing to say, oh, okay, so I think that this system, I can kind of grasp how this system would make sense for a judge in freedom of contract. Uh, thinking about uh, Lochner. And he says, but look, it's the same kind of approach the court takes in its antitrust cases. It's the same kind of analysis that the court used in its uh, race relation cases. It's the same kind of analysis the court used in its uh, freedom of speech cases. And when you see all that back to back in a series of chapters, right, it becomes kind of more convincing. Okay, maybe doctrine is shaping the behavior of these judges. We see a coherent system that maybe we, doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but does start uh, to make a lot of sense to them. And then we move on to what I think is maybe, at least to me, uh, the real extension of the way I had thought about uh, how doctrine might matter in this area, is that he uses this idea of pre-modernism to challenge us to think differently. Right? I think many of us, it's easy at least, to think that Legal doctrine doesn't matter because we know it doesn't matter, right? How can it constrain us if we know ahead of time that doctrine is created by people and it can be changed? So why don't we just change it? Right? Doctrine isn't constraining because judges can just write a new opinion. Right? And what I think he does with this pre-modern idea is point out that the idea that there is law out there, independent of human causal agency, waiting to be found by judges, looks more plausible when you point out that people thought that way about lots of things that we are now thinking are primarily caused by uh, human agency, the organization of the economy and morality, right? Nowadays, I, I think our kind of instinct is, at least, that uh, the way we organize the economy is a choice that we make as a society through government, and that in many ways, like our moral code grows from the underlying economic system that we have created. We think that human beings make these choices. 
Ted points out is that across a wide range of issues, this was not a broadly uh, shared idea. Okay. So that helps us also see how doctrine might matter because it helps us convince, it helps us see how judges might think that it matters. But here's the weird thing, right? Where we're headed, where Ted is taking us, uh, modernism is coming, right? And so is what Ted is doing, like ultimately saying the Virginia School of Legal History is making the claim that doctrine only mattered before modernism gets here and so the Virginia School ends in the 20th century? I hope not. That's where I am, right? And I think the answer is no, right? I think the answer is no. And so this line between pre-modernism and modernism, I think, supports this idea, in a, uh, supports the idea that doctrine does matter or at least can matter later in the following ways. Uh, first of all, I think it delegitimates the argument that vulgar legal realism, law as a species of policy making, and that's, and, and that's uh, the end of the story, right, uh, has not always been true. It was not true in the past. If it wasn't true in the past, maybe, doesn't argue that here, maybe it's also not fully uh, true uh, today. But I think there's a deeper level, and I, this may not be right. Um, I'll try it, and Ted can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I think on a deeper level, what Ted's claim is here about why doctrine matters post-premodernism uh, is, uh, is the claim that he uh, asserts at, at the beginning of the volume as an assumption of his analysis. He says, the assumption of my analysis is that law and American history have a reciprocal relationship. They influence each other, the causal arrows run both ways. And I think ultimately that that's not really an assumption of the study. Really, I think that's the point of the study. I think that's what you see after you have read the last volume and this volume. And if that's, the, if that's right, then the vision of law as superstructure, law as responding to other social or political uh, uh, determinants and just shifting along with them isn't the right model, right? It's not to claim, I don't think Ted would clearly not claim, it is in fact law at the base, right? Law, Ted is not a pre-modernist, right? Uh, but rather that these are different uh, sectors, different ways of understanding the world that bump into each other, that influence each other. And then if that's the case, the world that we're in now, right? The idea of the, that law continues to be something not just determined by other forces, but is a way of talking and thinking. It's an independent discipline that has its own rules and its own integrity. And thus it is ultimately uh, semi-autonomous. And that's the continuity that we see from the first volume to this volume uh, and moving forward into the future, though I don't know. We'll have to wait for the next volume. And uh, that's, that's my pitch. I hope it's right. Uh, at least I'll say that it stimulated a lot of my thinking. Thank you. Well, I was sitting, as I was sitting here, uh, a thought came to me uh, about what Holmes said on his 90th birthday address. Um, one of the things he said is, is uh, it's time to hear the kind voices of friends and to think the race is over. Um, but just when one has that thought, the answer comes, the race is never over until the, while the power to work remains. 
Um, and so essentially, I've always read that uh, the sentence as meaning homes get back to work. Um, and that's what I'm planning to do on, on, on volume three, but it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to hear that people have, uh, especially many people who know my work well, have, have taken some uh, benefits from this volume. Um, I want to say a couple of things about why in the world anyone would embark upon this particular three-volume, quote, survey that I did, and also to what extent characterization of my methodology uh, strikes me as, as accurate. Um, I was very surprised to hear Chuck, uh, who knows my intellectual history better than anyone, uh, say that uh, I was beginning to write this book with the Friedman Review. Um, I had absolutely no plans to write a book like this. Um, it, and indeed, when the reason I ended up writing it was because Oxford Press approached me at a time and said they wanted me to do a, com a competitive volume to Friedman's history. And I said, well, th and they gave me a pretty good advance. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, I just didn't really want to do it. Um, and I kept putting it off and putting it off. And finally, I made a proposal for another book to Oxford, and they responded by saying, well, we'll, we'll sign you up for that book, but you need to do that history of American law first. Um, so I started off um, with the idea that I would do a one-volume history, and about you know, 15 minutes into the project, I realized that I just couldn't do it. I, I just couldn't do a largely synthetic volume without some interpretive methodology, and I couldn't do all of American history in one volume. It just struck me it's going to, in my hands anyway, I mean, I think Friedman's books, uh, Friedman has a great many strengths as, a, as an author, and, and he has a wonderful capacity for narrative synthesis, which I really don't. Um, and so I thought, you know, that if I try to do this, it's going to be hopelessly superficial, and, and so I need, to, I need to have more space. And that's when I began to think of, of carving up the project into three volumes. Um, and, and Chuck McCurdy is absolutely right that, that I learned by writing. Um, and, and I decided to, along the way with these volumes, having a little more space, to try to write on some historical topics that I knew nothing about. And that was a very great pleasure to me in the first volume. And it was a pleasure to me in the second volume. It's, it's much less, so far, of a pleasure in the third. Um, because I'm having trouble finding areas that I, I've written a lot about 20th century and early 20th century uh, legal and constitutional history, I'm having trouble finding things that, that I know nothing about and that I'm, I'm really interested in writing about. Um, so I don't know, uh, you know, whether whether this will be a, a, um, a disappointment, uh, a disappointing third volume uh, remains to be seen. Um, but as to methodology, as to doctrine and the Virginia School and, and my agendas along those lines, I have a couple things to say about that. Um, the, the commentators are essentially right um, in characterizing my approach as trying to um, emphasize intellectual history and em emphasize doctrine and perhaps, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that these are unimportant 
um, dimensions of doing history at all, but to de-emphasize the social history and particularly to de-emphasize relation, a relationship between law and, and society at large in which uh, the causal arrows go just one way, the, the so-called mirror of society, law is a mirror of society approach. I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately um, trying to complicate that. Um, but one of the things I, I try to try, I'm trying to avoid in this set of books is privileging legal ideas in the sense of saying that I think that legal ideas are more important than other aspects of a culture in shaping the law. I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that. What I'm trying to suggest is that they are important, but they're largely important because they function as boundaries on the ability of historical actors to conceptualize legal issues. The, the prevailing intellectual assumptions of a particular historical epoch, for me, function as constraints on the ability of legal decision makers to imagine outcomes. And so, now, for me, um, legal history is simultaneously uh, about the power of the law and constraints on the law, which is why I can't endorse um, what Logan calls vulgar legal realism, um, because I think that vulgar legal realism suggests there aren't a sufficient amount of constraints on legal decision makers. But the constraints for me are cultural constraints which manifest themselves in boundaries on thought and feeling more than social constraints in the direct sense of what the con contemporary politics uh, are when a, when a Supreme Court makes decisions or when legal actors try to solve a legal issue. So I, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to write idealist legal history. Um, I'm, I'm trying to write legal history that introduces ideas as a source of constraint. I'm trying to unpack those ideas and, and so that we can better understand why courts and other legal decision makers made the decisions they made which may seem foolish or wrong-headed to us and offered rationales for those decisions which may, which may seem strange um, or foolish to us. I, I think in order to understand why they make, why arguments are made the way they are made, why um, the court of the 1920s, for example, considers racial segregation cases against a backdrop of assumptions that, that virtually everyone today would reject about, about race, about education, about the interaction of African Americans and whites, about the, the role of the of public and, and, and um, uh, higher education institutions in, in that interaction. It, it's hard to understand why unanimous Supreme Court in 1927, which, who includes Brandeis, 
on its members. Um, unanimously affirms Gong Lum versus Rice, which holds that uh, segregation um, of the, the colored and white um, school children in Mississippi is perfectly compatible with the Equal Protection Clause. Um, it, it, it's really the issue is not really even seriously in dispute. So I'm trying to get at why that is. And I'm trying to get at why that is through thinking about doctrinal arguments, what doctrinal arguments are statured and what are not, what assumptions lie behind those doctrinal arguments. Now, so there's, it, it's quite right, there, there is a lot of doctrine. And, and when Chuck and, and, and Barbara and, and uh, Logan started talking about details in the book, I, I thought about the fact that I, as I was about seven-eighths through the book, I thought, you know, nobody is going to read this because I have gotten so deeply immersed in the doctrinal complexities of the stuff that I'm writing about that, that it's just going to be arcane. And at that point, I blamed Ken Abraham because uh, having spent a lot of time with him, I, I, uh, I'm spending a lot of time with doctrine and the intricacies of doctrine, and, and, and it turns out I like it a lot. Um, but but I'm, I'm not doing any of this to make a, a um, philosophical statement um, as a legal scholar about what one ought to do in the relationship, in, in investigating the relationship between law and its social context. The other thing I want to say about that, about my methodology, is, is the point that Barbara made. Um, and when there was a panel on the first volume, some people made the same point. A and that is, you know, okay, White, you, you tell some dark stories here. You know, you tell the story of, in the first volume, you tell the story of slavery. In, in this volume, there's the story of immigration. There's the story of, of uh, interaction with with the state and American Indian tribes. Um, there's the story of race relations. Um, but, but you're, you're trying to make us understand how actors could have made these decisions in these dark stories. And really, aren't there sort of two unfortunate messages from them, possible messages? One is that, that we should you know, we should give them a clean shave for having done it. You know, just, just like the justices in Dred Scott. Um, they were prisoners of their time, and, and they operated within the limits of their time, so we shouldn't make any moral judgments about them at all. I, I, I'm not at all suggesting that. I'm suggesting that we can just understand better some of these decisions that we're repulsed by if we try to construct their mindset. The other thing that, that Barbara suggested was, well, is there a kind of um, nascent uh, triumphalism in this story in that you're suggesting that, well, there were these benighted attitudes and these sort of shocking decisions at one point, but if we explain them historically, we'll understand from that what we can't make that mistake again. So, of course, we won't have benighted policies about immigration and and we'll have better attitudes on race relations, and we'll be more tolerant toward Native Americans. Um, once this 
once this is exposed. Well, I, I'm not, I, I, I'd be nice if I were suggesting that uh, as as a uh, inhabitant of the planet um, in, in 2016, but I, I'm not. Um, I, indeed, I, I'm suggesting that we are just as much prisoners of our own um, thought, thoughts and feelings and boundaries on them as, as were the actors of the 1890s. Um, and, and that we're, you know, we, we're not nicer people just because we're, um, um, we're closer in a point of time to ourselves than, than, than previous generations. Um, we still have the same tendencies that they did. Um, and so I'm afraid that this, I do not intend this to be uh, an optimistic history. Um, the, the last thing I, I want to say about uh, echoing another thing that Barbara said about doing a survey um, is that these trilo this trilogy is, is not even a survey. Um, it's just an idiosyncratic series of books about law and American history with my particular concerns and, and intellectual agendas and interests. And I don't, not only do I not expect a wide mass audience from it because of its general unintelligibility, um, um, I, I, I don't expect it to, to be pitched at a, a, a people with a wide variety of perspectives. Um, what I do hope is, is what some people on the panel have suggested, that it will be a book that, will, that some people will take a look at more than once and maybe have their um, thoughts challenged or, or um, stimulated by it. Um, it it's, uh, it's been a pleasure to write, despite all the, the difficulties I've had in slogging through some of the topics. Um, it's still fun. Um, I, I think uh, I'll be glad to see it over. Um, uh, and, and then I'll write a book on how uh, the beautiful game came to America. Soccer in the, 1950, from, in the United States from the 1950s to the present. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Ted, and thank you, commentators. Uh, we have a few minutes now for questions uh, from the audience. Uh, if you could just raise your hand, I'll point at you, and you could maybe stand up and, and ask a question. If you need the microphone, I can bring it to you, but otherwise, just yell out. Ted, I haven't read the book yet. More important from your perspective, I haven't bought your book yet. <laughs> but I, uh, so I asked this question out of ignorance uh, on your treatment of the 14th Amendment. Uh, two questions about it. Do you offer any speculation, let alone an explanation, for the critical shift from the word citizen to the word person in section one of the 14th Amendment? Uh, and two, do you offer any speculation about why uh, section two concerning representation in the House of Representatives has been such a dead letter from the day it was passed? As to section two, I don't. I, I don't, and I don't have any, I don't have any clue. Um, I mean, I think that's, a, that's an issue that could well be explored by someone with your kind of penchant to, to do that sort of um, down in the weeds research in the, in the period, but no, Mike, I'm clueless about that. Now, as to citizen and person, um, my argument in the chapter is that 
you can't and and this is a this is an argument that I borrow heavily from George Rutherglen's book on civil rights in the shadow of slavery. Um, but my argument is that you can't understand the Civil Rights Act um, of 1866 nor the 14th Amendment without understanding the what I call the pre-modern, um, that is the antebellum conception of civil rights. The term wasn't even really used um, in, in antebellum literature, but and in that in that world, there is a big difference between citizens and persons, um, because states can determine citizenship. States can states can make African Americans not citizens. States can make women not citizens for the purposes of, of voting, and and so one of the things that the framers are are trying to do is to figure out which portions of the amendment they want to limit to citizens and which portions of the amendment they don't. And so I think that's, yeah, so I think that distinction is very important. But as to section two, I'm, I'm clueless. I've got a question, Ted, for you, um, which is, is it, so you draw an interesting distinction between um, your understanding of I, the way in which you see doctrinal ideas as important in history, and you say that they, you see them as a constraint operating on, on different possible outcomes of, of what was conceivable, uh, and that, that, um, that, we, that your goal is to understand the sort of get inside the heads, essentially, of the judges making these decisions, presumably lawyers as well, but let's focus on judges. But you say it's not an idealist kind of history, uh, which I would, I think what you mean by that is the idea that ideas themselves are some, in some way the causal force in, in history in some, in some kind of way. But I guess I'm wondering whether, whether that distinction is one that you can draw. I mean, is, isn't it, at the end of the day, either one thinks that the, uh, the ideas, at least, given, at least given certain assumptions at the time, uh, that the ideas themselves are what are explaining the decisions, or or it's something else. You, you know, the, the the term idealist comes out. Of, I mean, maybe I'm just showing my age in this respect. That the, I, I was using the term idealist in in contradistinction to materialist, uh, as if it's a methodolo methodological debate between legal historians who believe that. When you're totaling it all up, what really counts as causal agents in history are ideas, ideas and their expression by great men or great people, or materialist features in the culture. I, I, don't, I think that's a sterile distinction. I don't care at all about it. Um, and so I didn't want to have anybody think that by taking doctrine seriously, if you were, I was associating myself w with that point of view. But I, I, I do continue to think, and I, I think this, I, well, I'm just, let me just digress by a, uh, for a moment. And, um, I ran into Laura Kalman uh, at, a, at a function here um, recently. Was, I think it was actually on Reese's new book. Um, and Laura Kalman is an old friend, and, and Laura Kalman is a political and social historian of law. And um, she, she and I had dinner, and, and she said, you know, I remember these, this 
couple of articles, early articles that I wrote on jurisprudence, American jurisprudence, in which I argued that jurisprudence has been misunderstood because there's been insufficient attention to the social context in which jurisprudential ideas emerged. And I argued that there was a relationship, say, between sociological jurisprudence and progressivism and so on. And, and she said, you know, I, I keep reading your stuff and you seem to be getting further and further away from this point of view. Are, are you just, you know, are you convinced that, that doctrine is of this paramount significance as opposed to what's going on outside? Um, and, I, and I said, yeah, I am. Um, I, don't mean that, I don't mean that the people who make legal decisions or make legal arguments are not influenced by the, the, their, their context, the external context. Not at all. Of course they're influenced by the external context. The external context partially drives the, the decisions. But I, I, what I do believe increasingly, as, as, as I do scholarship, is that when courts need to make decisions, they need to make them in the language and the vocabulary and the currency of doctrine. And at that point is where what I'm calling constraints come into play. That is to say, you're trying to make a decision. The decision has political and social ramifications. It represents a controversy, a contemporary controversy. But you decide it with certain sets of, of justifications which come out of doctrine. And so when you start to work up your justifications, you are constrained. You are not only constrained by received doctrine, you're constrained by the assumptions that drive that received doctrine. So what I'm trying to do is take historical actors where it's easier to show those assumptions because we have distance from them. And, it's, and, and you have the ability as an intellectual historian to show the origins of, of those things and, and, um, and introduce it into the process so that people, so that what I hope people will do, legal historians will do, is, is take it seriously and not dismiss not simply treat legal decisions in terms of outcomes or dismiss uh, legal justifications as, as mere rationalizations. Yes, indeed. So I'm, I'm, I, I guess it's a sort of follow-up on that. So I'm curious um, about how much you think there's a range of thinking about this issue um, in a particular time, right? So clearly, I, I, um, I think from Logan's comments, right, there are, there's a mark, right, over time about how people shift from one form of thinking to another. But in any particular time, um, are most people sort of on the same page, or is there a range of thought on this question? Well, of course, there's a range of thought on interpretations of what are treated as authoritative sources. And sometimes there's a range of thought on methodologies for getting there, although that's a little bit rarer. What I don't think there's much range of thought in is the expectation about which sources are authoritative, which sources really count. I think there's surprisingly, surprising concord on that. And when you, I, I try to unpack that and try to figure out why do they think that, you know, for example, why would you live in a world in which you had the Commerce Clause and you decided to engraft upon the Commerce Clause the idea of direct and indirect effects on interstate commerce 
of regulation of local activities. Why did the court choose to do that? There's no mandate in the Constitution for it. Why did they choose to do it? And then once it, they did it, why did it stay in place as long as it did? I, 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 think, those, I think those are important questions. And I think they show the constraints on, on legal actors. Yes, sir, in the back there. Oh, Gordon. Um, it's a similar question. Um, it seems to me the events of recent months and years have shown that these ideas that you characterize as pre-modern, or these constraints, are still much alive. Many of the contemporary critics of the Supreme Court would probably be delighted to have some fuller court judges back on the court. So I'm just curious. It seems to me this, this, this gives your work a sort of political cast in that it's, you know, by dismissing these, I quote, dismissing these ideas as pre-modern, even though you're trying to understand them, right? Isn't that, how, what does that say to the reader who still believes there is a kind of natural order of the universe or that? Well, that, yeah. The, all those people are trying to say that Lochner was right to decide. Well, no. Now, all right, I'll, I'll say something about that, and I'll say something about originalism. But as to the community of people that believe that the assumptions about the world, about causal agents in the world that were held by a majority of persons, let's say, in, in 1780, um, are still the assumptions that one ought to have. That is, one still, ought to, one still ought to make policy by following the dictates of God. There ought to be a hierarchical social order. Um, the na nature, is a, nature is a controlling force in the universe. We have a limited capacity to control it. History is a cyclical, not a progressive process. Th there, are, there are some people out there who hold those views, and I guess I'm not speaking to them. Um, uh, but but suggesting that pre-modernism is an epistemological stage over the course of American history, and, and as you say, maybe that therefore relegating it in some way, it isn't to suggest that people who might prefer the approaches of the Fuller Court or prefer original understandings of provisions of the Constitution are themselves pre-modernists. I, I think m much of the move toward originalism is a search for constraints on judges. It's a reaction to the idea that the Constitution is a living document that changes over time. If that's the case, and, and what are the constraints on judges who change it? So then you're searching for some methodology that, that constrains judges. I, I don't think, so I don't think Justice Thomas is a pre-modern. I think he's a modern who's very concerned about living constitutionally. Any other questions? Oh, yeah, sorry. Andy? Thanks again for doing this. Um, do you think that the notion of a thing about history that breaks, which, I mean, this idea is popular in a lot of modern scholars, uh, are, there, are there cases that are breaks, or does your methodology sort of imply that we can always, you know, whether it be retrospective or not, understand the doctrinal development in history as a, a movement of progress rather than a, a new era? 
Yeah, that, that, that's, a, um, that's an argument that I took on in, in the Constitution and the New Deal. I, I argued that the so-called constitutional revolution of 1937 didn't actually take place. And I would argue further that opinions of the Supreme Court have a, have a limited shelf life, you know, 25 years or so, but that th th this isn't a, f a product of some kind of sudden break or transformation, and that even opinions, even opinions that we would describe as seminal, even opinions like Brown v. Board, can be explained in, in terms of what's going on at the time the decision is, is made. They, they may look, at, at some level, like a massive change. I mean, you overrule a precedent in, that has tremendous social ramifications. But the methodology, the assumptions driving it, even the early precedents that Brown decision invokes, suggest that it, it's a product of, it's a product of altering attitudes toward race and altering theories of constitutional interpretation that, have, that are becoming mainstream in the 1950s rather than a dramatic break with anything. So, yeah. Other questions? If there are no other questions, please join me in thanking the panelists uh, and Ted, and we'll have a reception. Oh, so, I'm so sorry, I didn't see you. I'm I sorry. have a counterfactual question for you. Thank you. So, <laughs> one, of, one of the things that I was, so this the fabulous chapter that uh, puts together the antitrust cases and the police power cases, what are often referred to as the substantive due process, the Lochner era cases. Uh, and I found myself thinking about, so if, if we try to imagine away for a moment the 14th Amendment, what do you think the history of protective legislation would have worked out to be in the states because you have states that states that are upholding in state supreme courts upholding some of the regulation some that are striking it down but but I wonder would we have gotten to you know the, the 1937 you know the New Deal era picture sooner for all workers in the absence of the do, do you see the question I mean do you have a sense do you have any ideas about that well, one, one suggestive example is workers' comp. Workers' comp is a dramatically successful reform, largely uncontroversial. Well, I mean, it, it's initially declared unconstitutional, but once you get over the, that barrier, it's, it's, it's largely uncontroversial. Um, and yet, it doesn't, it doesn't rest on the due process clause or anything. So you could argue that even if you didn't have the 14th Amendment, and remember, it's not incorporated against the states for a long time. You, you don't get incorporation until the 1920s, and that's only First Amendment things. So, so you know, th this is one of these historical counterfactuals. Um, you could argue that if the Supreme Court had done nothing, not had any of these police power cases and all this elaborate, you know, pricking the boundary jurisprudence, Sooner or later, the states and the federal government would have ended up reaching the same ends as extending. There would be more police power legislation protecting social welfare rights. Um, I, I just don't know that you can answer that question, but I, I do know that what happened is there's a change in attitudes about 
what we would now call entitlements or the responsibility of government to individual citizens, there's a sea change that takes place between the 1890s and the 1930s. I don't think that's driven by any particular legal decision, um, but it then ends up filtering into it. Oh, great. Well, thank you. Please join me in thanking Ted and the panelists. And, uh, and join us for a reception right over here.